Well, we've already been quite fed, but I'm scheduled to preach, and so uh, we, 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 uh, we might get it today until it's coming out of our nostrils, which is good to be fed from the Lord. What I want to do is sort of what I did last week, is piece together some verses of Scripture just to sort of form a completed thought in your mind. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 12 verse 12, then I'm going to jump and read verse 24b, beginning at the word but, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 27. So 12, and then 24b, and then verse 27, and hopefully this, again, will give you a a completed picture. For just as the body is one... And has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Now, You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word as it's already been read, taught, explained. We've been encouraged, strengthened, reminded, Lord, of how we ought to be constantly self-catechizing and all, all constantly uh, examining ourselves to make sure that we are not desiring something beyond what you have given, so graciously given. How, how awful it is that we see your blessings and we receive your blessings and then we would even begin to think that we deserve more or should have something more or that something in addition to that would be better than what you've given. Lord, you are good and you do good. Lord, teach us your statutes. Teach us to think the way you think, to see things the way you see things. Lord, I pray as we look at your word now that you would give us a great love and compassion for your church and teach us to see the church the way you see it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We begin last Lord's Day to think through some preparatory thoughts with regard to how we ought to read the particular addresses that John gives to the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And we sort of did a, an overview and we saw that In all but two of the churches, there are errors brought to the surface. There are commands given to repent. There are threatenings upon given to those churches, threatenings to remove their lampstand, the light of their witness, ultimately the the power of the Spirit in in each church as a singular, what I call a singular ecclesiastical unit. In other words, as a church body... 
the Lord speaks to them and He doesn't say, now you over here do this and you over here do this and I need some there to repent but I need some there to just keep doing what you're doing. While that, there are some ways that we ought to think in that regard, when He addresses those churches, He addresses them as a whole. As a church, y'all need to repent. There are some who are doing this, some are not doing this, but y'all need to, essentially, y'all need to get together and turn from those sins as corporate bodies. And so that led us to see what I call the reality of corporate repentance. And then we took note of the fact that that reality of corporate repentance, that Christ could speak to a body and tell an entire body to repent of sins that were not uh, pervasive in every individual member, that reality is built on another reality, namely corporate solidarity or corporate unity. And I might use those terms interchangeably. Probably going to use unity more often because it's shorter. So... We looked at the reality of corporate solidarity or corporate unity. And this is what I said. Each member of a particular church shares a responsibility to the people in that church and to that church as a body that he or she does not share in the same way with other believers from other churches or other churches. We do have a relationship with all believers and we're going to have intimate interactions with some believers from other churches often. But the relationship that we have in a particular church is in some way different than it is with other believers from other churches. I showed this first from the language of Scripture. The very word church assumes an assembly. So there is, there is a group of people that get together on a regular basis that doesn't get together on a regular basis or, or that they don't get together with different people in the same way that we get together with one another. You might go to another church sometime. You might visit another congregation sometime. But it's not like you do here. If, if I visit a church in Wake Forest one week and then I don't go back the next week, nobody's asking, where's Paul? because they're not expecting me to be there. Whereas if I didn't show up here, everybody would be saying, what's happening? There's, and the same for all of you. When somebody's not here, people are asking, what, what's happening? What's, what's the deal? Because we share that personal relationship with the common assembly that we gather with regularly. We also looked at the supreme analogy, which I read from uh, 1 Corinthians 12 here, with regard to the body. The parts of your body have been put together to work with the other parts of your body in a way that the parts of your body don't work with other parts of other people's bodies. Now, I can hold hands with my wife, and there might be a situation where if a football were flying at my wife's face and I saw it, I might reach up and smack it. But for the most part, the, the members of my body are not going to be relating to my wife's body in the same way that they relate to my body. Because that's just not how human bodies work. The church and each individual local church is called the body. We read that in 1 Corinthians 12, 27. We looked at the one another passages, and I didn't read all of the references, but I just listed them, and we saw that there are things that some of them you can and will be able to do regularly with other believers, 
But if those things were given under the assumption that we ought to be doing all of these things to every believer at every time and place around the world, it would simply be impossible. There's no way we could fulfill it. The assumption again is, and the entire New Testament is written in this context, there are some people over there who are getting together regularly, and these one another's are to be carried out between them in a way and with an obligation that they don't have with other churches. Then we looked at the passages that dealt with the relationship between the laity and the leaders, and the leaders and the laity. Again, all of this just assuming we have a relationship that we don't have with other people. There are churches meeting this morning, they have a relationship with their elders that they don't have to me, and I don't have to them a responsibility in the same way that we share here in this particular church. So the language of Scripture proves this notion. And of course we saw all of this is built on our common salvation. First and foremost, if you are a Christian, you've been born again of the Spirit of God, a Spirit won for us through the substitutionary life and death of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross. He was raised from the, from the dead. He's ascended into the heaven, sent His Holy Spirit to fill His people. All who believe in Him receive the gift of the indwelling Spirit. And then some of those people, because of God's providence, are placed in a time and a place where they can reasonably gather together on a consistent basis in a particular local church. We also saw the relationship of the gifts of the Spirit to the members in a body. You've been given gifts that help me. And I've been given gifts that help you. And the gifts that we've been given are primarily to be used as this body gets together in a different way than they would be used elsewhere. And again, we can, we can clarify all these or qualify them by saying, yes, you can use your gifts for other believers. And even lost people will benefit from your gifts. But primarily, and you see this in 1 Corinthians 14, a lot of them, Paul says really the emphasis is the edification of the body. There are a lot of things he told Corinth you could be doing that are, they're, they're kind of, they're great I guess, but really if you lay one alongside of edifying the body, pick edifying the body. I wish that everybody spoke in tongues, but if you could speak one word of prophecy that would benefit the whole body, pick that one word. His... his Emphasis there was the building of the body. The gifts of the Spirit are given primarily for the building up of a particular church. Then we saw the implications of that solidarity. We have responsibilities to one another, positive and negative. Use our gifts, rescue one another from sin, bear one another's burdens, and even church discipline. All of these are implications of that reality. Now, I told you that what we would do would, would be to look at the implications of that solidarity and the reality of that, and then move to the reality of corporate repentance. But what I want to do instead of that is do my part in helping you with what was the first point of application last week. I know everybody remembers it, but I'll say it out loud anyway just for the sake of those who weren't here. The first point of application was recognize this unity. Just recognize it. Acknowledge it. See that it's a real thing. Well my particular giftings to be used in this body are the opening up of the Scriptures and teaching and exhorting and admonishing from the Scriptures. And so what I want to do is help you recognize this unity as it's laid out in Scripture. So my plan of attack is to show this theme, corporate unity, corporate solidarity, 
in a biblical theology form. Now, because of what Austin's been doing, everybody now knows what biblical theology is. You take a theme and you trace it in, in some category that is given to us in the canon of Scripture. Austin's been going Genesis to Revelation. We've got a book out here on the literature table that's the Doctrines of Grace in the Gospel of John. That's a biblical theology. It takes John, as it's given to us in the canon, and opens up a theme or multiple themes in that book. What I want to do is do a biblical theology of corporate unity, restraining ourselves to the New Testament. And by the time we're done, we will have seen this theme of corporate unity at least referenced to every audience in the New Testament and from almost every book of the New Testament. Now, I'm not going to just start at Matthew and work to Revelation. I've tried to categorize these things into uh, some categories that will help us keep it all in uh, clear in our minds. The first one being the supreme emphasis of unity. So that's what I want to talk about today. The supreme emphasis of corporate unity. Now when you think about that, you would probably say, well, if you want to prove to me that this is a supreme emphasis, just show me every verse in the New Testament. Well, that's what we will have done by the end of it, or almost every reference in the New Testament. But today I just want to show, show it to you in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Before I do that, I want to remind you that when I talk about corporate unity, I am talking about unity within a particular church. I'm not talking about some sort of ecumenism where churches get together with other churches simply because we espouse the name of Christ or profess to be Christians. Uh, this unity is a unity in truth and practice, in word and deed. We, we could say in belief and action. This is not a unity at the expense of truth. This is not a unity at the expense of holiness as it's laid out in the Scriptures. But it's a, it is a unity that labors unto unity in the truth and in practice, which implies you can have unity without being absolutely settled on every issue and every practice in every mind in the church. There can still be unity. The, the idea that came to my mind or the picture is if I, if I gave you a, a solid piece of steel and I said, I need you to labor for the unity of this piece of steel, well, you, there's no work to be done. It's one. It's unified. You don't have to labor for the unity of something that's already one. But when we're laboring to unify, that assumes there's at least two different things that we're trying to bring together and a process of bringing two separate things together in the case of a local church, a bunch of different things, a bunch of different personalities, a bunch of different brains, uh, people at all different levels of spiritual growth and maturity, at different levels of practice. And so we're laboring for a unity that will be brought about in truth and in practice. And any shortcoming in these things in a local church is to be blanketed with love. Love covers a multitude of sins. Now, again, I can qualify that and say we're not talking about primary issues. If there's someone who says, well, I want to be a member of your church. I'm still struggling with the deity of Christ. I would say, then we've got a problem here. This is not going to work. We, that, those are things we have to settle. Um, in 1 Corinthians 5, there was a man living in open, flagrant, unrepentant sin that even all of the world knew. We don't do that. Paul says, get him out. 
We're not talking about those primary things when we say that love can cover a multitude of sins. We're saying secondary and tertiary issues as we come to a unified understanding, we cover with love. And that unified understanding might be we agree to disagree and we love each other anyway. That there's unity there. there it, it's not a... Uh, if we all... If all of the men walk out of here in 10 years with man buns and cuffed pants, people are going to say, y'all are part of the 12 tribes. Y'all look the same. Y'all act the same. Y'all live together. That's not what we're after. We're, we're after a, a biblical unity in truth and action in primary issues. So again, we're going to relegate ourselves to the Apostle Paul. In the weeks to come, we're going to see Paul got his ideas from Christ. Peter also got the same ideas from Christ. Here's what I want you to walk away with today. For the Apostle Paul, after preaching the gospel and establishing local churches, his primary emphasis, his supreme emphasis in his apostolic labor was the unity of those local churches that he had established. So this is, obviously you see there a pattern. The gospel is primary. We preach the gospel. We're making sure that we have true believers gathered into a real body, a real local church, and then labor for the unity in that church. I've got six points. Eight texts overall, and I'm gonna, we're going to turn to these. They're not going to be, most of them are not going to be on the screen. So what you're going to get is essentially eight mini-sermons. Um, and you don't have to pay me any extra. We'll just consider this an even trade for helping me move and the construction work that y'all have done uh, in our home so far. Point number one, we're going to see from Ephesians chapter 4. I want you to see the urgency and obligation of corporate unity. The urgency and obligation of corporate unity. Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace. First, I want you to see the, from this text the urgency of practical godliness. The urgency. Most of you know the book of Ephesians because it's an even number. It sort of divides itself fairly clearly after chapter 3. This is not a hard and fast division, but generally speaking, chapters 1, 2, and 3 cover all of the indicatives of the gospel. What God has done in Christ and applied by His Spirit to bring Jew and Gentiles out of death and bring them to spiritual life. It's, it's just describing the work of God. And then beginning at chapter 4, we have the therefore. And chapters 4, 5, and 6 open up how we ought to live in light of what God has done. And you can see there the transition at verse 1. I, therefore, in light of all of that. So everything after that statement flows from what God has done. And if you just move your eyes through the book of Ephesians, you can see just after this section, the gifts 
given to the body for the maturity of the church, putting off of the old ways of sin and putting on righteousness, walking in righteousness and holiness, being filled with the Spirit and the consequent actions that come from being filled with the Spirit, like submitting to one another. And then there's a family table, husbands, wives, children, bond servants, and putting on the armor of God, living and walking in light of what God has done in Christ and applied by the Spirit for believers. Now we come to verse 1 of chapter 4. In the original, the first word of chapter 4 is urge. Now that lets you know when it's at the beginning of a sentence, that lets you know this is the emphasis. In this sentence, the emphasis is laying on the word urge. You kind of already get, kind of can get into the feeling of what Paul's writing here. This word in 2 Corinthians 2.8 is translated in the ESV as beg. And in 2 Corinthians 12.8 it's translated as pleaded. So after all of the lofty theological indicatives of chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, and then leading into the inevitable fruit of practical godliness in chapters 4, 5, and 6, we have a word that is conveying to us Paul's heart on the matter. I urge you. I'm begging you. I'm pleading you. He does not say, go back and read chapter 1. God is sovereign. Hey, we'll see how it works. You, you guys got it. God's sovereign. No, he says, I'm begging you to live in a certain way. In light of that, I'm urging you. The second thing that we see here is the overarching obligation. What is the overarching theme that he's trying to urge upon the Ephesians? I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. To walk is a reference to their pattern of life and the manner of walking is the way in which they are to carry out their lives. The way they live. I'm urging you, I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you to live your life in a way, and this is a tall order, worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Your way of life should be one that in light of its drastic break from what it used to be and its holiness, its godliness, your life ought to be one that is in some way comparable, has gained some sort of worth, some value parallel to the calling to which you've been called. Now what is this calling? Well, if we go back to chapter 1 verse 18, we have a reference to their having been called. He's praying for them that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that they would know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. The, that, that's the ultimate end of the calling. We, we could put in this the effectual call of God from life to death, the, the salvation in Christ that ultimately ends up in the great inheritance of the saints, the glorious inheritance. So... Paul is urging them to live in such a way that their lives have a value that is parallel with the calling unto a glorious eternal inheritance. Now, 
we tend to want to read that and say, well, there's no way that we could ever live in such a way that would even begin to pay back what Christ has done for us. It's not possible. He doesn't ask if it's possible. He says, you aspire to this anyway. Live like this. In light of what God has done, Paul says, I'm begging you to make it your aim to live your lives in a way that corresponds in godliness to the glorious inheritance to which you've been called. And then he shows us, begins to move into what is the practical fulfillment of that obligation. And the rest of the letter really is outworking this lifestyle. But just note a few things. I urge you to walk, and notice how the verbiage, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility. So he's beginning right away to show us what this lifestyle looks like. He doesn't begin with necessarily their theological knowledge or acumen. He begins immediately with how they will think and live, and I'll prove this, within the church. Humility here is a compound word. It means the humility of thinking, the, the way of, of their, their thinking. Thinking with humility. Thinking yourself right, rightly. In light of who you are, in light of what God has done, think of you rightly. Now, what I really was interesting, go to Romans 12 and he does the exact same thing. Chapters 1 through 11 is all the gospel. Chapter 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, dot, dot, dot. No one thinking more highly of himself than he ought to think. It begins here. Live this kind of life by first assessing yourself, thinking rightly, Walking in with humility and then gentleness. This is the way you act. Think with humility and then act with gentleness. And a person who is thinking with humility is going to act with gentleness. Now when you read this, you hear, you, you read these words, humility and gentleness. Do you think, when you read gentle, do you think that Paul's talking about the way you carry your eggs from the car to the house? Or the way you cradle a baby's head. No, that doesn't even enter our minds. He goes on to explain what he's, what he's talking about. Humility, gentleness, with patience. And then he explains that patience. Bearing with one another in love. The patience, that's enduring a hardship. And then the bearing with one another, that's the hardship. And doing this in love, the manner in which we ought to bear with one another, is the manner of love. So we understand that there are differences among us, and these differences that are between us come with difficulties as we are living lives so connected with one another in the church. People who are different often present a great difficulty to us. This is what we learn in marriage. Opposites attract. We, we love to say that, man, opposites attract. And then you get those two opposites alone, and you're like, man... This is, this is something, isn't it? It's, it's really something. This is what it happens in the church because you're getting a bunch of opposites together. And he says you're going to have to be patient and you're just going to have to bear with one another. He's, he's not talking about eggs or babies. He's talking about dealing with people in the church. And he goes on in chapter 4 to talk about the church. But he says that we ought to also be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. 
To, e to be eager means to be zealous or enthusiastic, going after it, seeking it. I've got to have it. Making every effort to maintain this unity. Now, to maintain assumes that the unity is there, but it can be attacked. It can begin to be threatened. And so we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. The unity of heart and mind that is given to us by the Spirit of God to believers. And I think Bunyan makes a good point that this is not the, the Spirit ontologically because the Spirit can't be divided. He's one. It's the, spirit, the unity that the Spirit creates in believers. We ought to be zealous to keep up that unity in the bond of peace. And we talked about peace several weeks ago. Peace is not merely non-conflict. Biblical peace is caring. It's mutual love for one another. We'll see that at the end. So we are to maintain the unity given by the Spirit by walking with one another in Spirit-wrought love. So put all that together. Paul says, you have been chosen in eternity. Ephesians 1 is the text that we often run to to see of the sovereignty of God and salvation beginning in eternity. You have been chosen in eternity, predestined for adoption, redeemed by the blood of His cross. That salvation has been applied to you by the Holy Spirit of God, guaranteeing for you an eternal inheritance. And He says, I'm begging you, in light of that, live this way. I'm begging you to live like that has happened to you. Paul, what, what does it mean to live like that? First, think of yourself rightly. Act with gentleness. Be patient and bear with one another. And zealously pursuing the maintenance of the unity of the Holy Spirit through active caring and mutual love for one another. And he goes on to explain, you've been given gifts in the church to teach you the Word, and you could trace that down too. There's a unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Verse 15, speaking the truth in love. He's talking about the unity that we get in the body through the truth, not at the expense of truth. Through the truth. So there's an urgency and an obligation, almost primary, after the true gospel is walking together in humility and gentleness and patience. And it's an obligation. You've been redeemed. We could go back to chapter 3. You've been brought into one body. Chapter 4, you're growing up into mature manhood, into Christ, one Christ. You have an obligation to live like you've been brought into the body of Christ. Second text, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 verses 1 and 2, and here we see what I'm calling the apostolic struggle for corporate unity. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Notice first his struggle. I want you to know how great a struggle I have. The word from which we get our word agony, agonize. Paul is in agony, internal and I believe also external anguish at this point. 
And so that which he's about to address is something for which he has agonized in his mind and in his spirit, no doubt producing agony in prayer. Later on he talks about Epaphras struggling on their behalf in his prayers. He probably learned that from Paul in agony of prayer, agony of the body, the torture given to his physical body for the sake of the saints and their unity. In Philippians 2.17, he talks about being poured out for their faith. I'm being poured out for their faith. It's probably the same picture given here. He's agonizing. So we would ask, Paul, what on earth could be important enough for you to suffer in this way, to, to tear you up like this? I mean, you, you preach the gospel, you did your job. Just move on. Go to bed and go to sleep. What, what is so heavy on your heart that you're in agony of soul and willing to suffer in your physical body in order to get it. What is it? I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those that are at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged. He wants their hearts to be, the word should probably, probably be consoled or comforted in distress. He longs for their inward consolation. This is why he always says grace and peace. He wants them to get the grace that can bring them to a place of peace. Inward consolation. And then notice the means that Paul names for obtaining this peace of heart and also full assurance of understanding. That their hearts may be encouraged being knit together. Now when we hear knit, we think of sewing or of, of crocheting, but the... And that helps. The word here is more like a physical term. It's the same word used in Ephesians 4, verse 16, when it talks about the joints holding the body together. So whatever it is that your knee joint is doing right now to keep your shin bone from falling off of your femur when we stand up and sing in a minute, whatever's happening there, Paul says, that's what I want for the hearts of the saints. And some of you, if you have a, a, an anatomical and, and biological understanding of that, could probably explain what's happening there. I can't. But he wants their hearts to be knit together because he knows that hearts knit together are consoled hearts, are assured hearts. Paul knows, I can't be there for you to do this for you, but you can do it for one another. He knew that corporate unity was a means of grace that would lead to peace. And so he's in agony over this. Paul struggled within and without in prayer and labor and suffering while he was away from them. Something kept him up at night. And it was, it was this. <gasps> and he would wake up. Are their hearts knit together? He was in agony over this. And I wonder if you have ever had a sleepless night over some real or even supposed disunity in this congregation. Have you ever not felt like eating because your stomach was so tore up thinking that you might have offended a brother or a sister or thinking that somebody else in the church was offended by somebody else? It wasn't even you. But you're just sick to think that there's not unity, that the hearts are not knit together. Have you ever spent a day in prayer and fasting that a, a brother or 
A sister in the church would not be swept away by the cares of the world because you're already beginning to see something in their conversation and in their eye and in their schedule that makes you think they're already beginning to drift. I could begin to pray and to fast now, but if I'm honest, it's already, it might already be too late. Paul knew that type of agony because he knew that when an ember falls out of the fire, it's not long before it stops glowing. It's dead. Apostolic struggle. Thirdly, notice his apostolic jealousy for corporate unity. Here we'll be in Galatians 5. Galatians chapter 5. Now we've seen a lot of this on Sunday nights, some of the, perhaps the strongest language in the New Testament is in the book of Galatians. We know the Galatian heresy was, was a, a legalistic heresy in the true form of the word legalism. There, there were men coming in who were saying, you've got to obey the legal institutes of Moses if you are to be a true Christian. And all of that sort of summed up and epitomized in the act of circumcision. False teachers were coming in and were teaching this legalism. And at, from the very outset, Paul gives a double anathema to those who would teach this type of gospel. He says they can go to hell with that and take it with them twice. Let them be damned. Anathema, cut off. And this false teaching we know was causing a stirring and unsettling Probably one group against another. People wondering, well, what are we supposed to do? We thought we were real believers, but now we're not really sure. These people are Jews. I mean, they've got the ancient faith. They've got the ancient scriptures. Because of this division, they were beginning probably to consume one another. There was not unity. Notice Galatians 5 and verse 12. First, Paul's hyperbolic wish. We're seeing here his jealousy for this unity. I wish that those who unsettle you would, the ESV says, emasculate themselves. Now remember that a key component of the Galatian heresy was summed up in this idea of circumcision. Circ or circum, circle, around, circumference. Scission, incision, <laughs> incisors, cut. Circumcision means to cut around. Of course, we know circumcision was instituted, given to Abraham by God, the cutting off of the foreskin of the male genitalia as a sign of their being in and of the lineage of Abraham. Here, what Paul's saying is, dealing with the language first, it's in the middle voice. He's telling them to do something to themselves. Ours says emasculate themselves. It's a play on words with the idea of cutting. He's saying if circumcision is so important, if cutting off a little skin brings you so much closer to God, then just cut the whole thing off. Go all the way. Take that scalpel that's so precious to you that you're forcing upon others. Just turn it against yourself and finish off the job. One commentator says, I hope the scalpel slips on them. Now, He's obviously being hyperbolic, I believe, playing on circumcision as well as the cults of his own day who actually did this as a form of asceticism, self-mutilation. A lot of commentators try to reason away this, 
description because it is so grotesque. How could he even be talking about this? But the language is really practically undeniable. You can feel in that at least his anger that he has for this wicked nonsense that's creeping into this church. Now what's his reasoning? Why is he so vehemently opposed to these men? Verse 13, For you were called to freedom. He goes back ultimately to their salvation in Christ. A salvation from the chains of self-righteousness and attendance upon this type of rituals. But then he clarifies, we have these two ideas. There's a false gospel and there's also freedom in Christ. They've been unsettled. I wish that those who unsettle you. He clarifies this by saying, you've been called to a freedom in Christ. But that freedom was not unto a free for all. It's a freedom in Christ within the confines of the body of Christ. Notice the end of verse 13. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law... See, they were pushing. You want to be a Christian? You've got to obey the law. You want to be a Christian? You've got to be circumcised. Paul says, nah, nah. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. The primary Galatian heresy was a false and damning gospel. But secondary to that, you've got this probably young and yet unsettled, divided congregation almost at one another's throats over this issue. And Paul says, I'm not dealing, I'm not going to put up with that. Get rid of them. They're unsettling you. So the force of this language proves his hatred, not only for the false gospel that's come into the church, but that this little church has been disturbed and unsettled. Paul wants the salvation of the lost, but at the same time, he wants unity in the body among the redeemed. Number four, and these will be on the screen because this two texts here... Unity is given as a reason for separation. Unity is given as a reason for separation. Now this might be the irony of ironies. But the New Testament is clear that true biblical unity within a church is so important that anyone who threatens that unity is to be avoided. First text, Titus 3, 10 and 11. As for a person who stirs up division... After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. A person who stirs up division, one of the things God hates, is warped, perverted, sinful, contrary, and falling short of the divine law, and self-condemned. The very fact that he would stir up division in the body of Christ is evidence that he's lost. So that we have the positive and the negative. Unity is a sign of true faith. A person who causes division, that is a dead-on sign, that person is self-condemned, an unbeliever. So, warn them once, then twice, then have nothing more to do with them. We can lay this alongside of Romans 16, verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Those who cause divisions are to be 
avoided divisions, obstacles contrary to the doctrine. Not at the expense of doctrine. Contrary to doctrine. Doctrine divides. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. So we put these things together. Titus and Romans. We see sort of a, a way to deal with people who cause division in the body. Identify the problem. Divisions being stirred up. Obstacles contrary to sound doctrine are being promoted. Identify the person. Watch out, Paul says in Romans. Take notice. Mark them. It's important here to remember that he says mark them, not mark it or that. We are to mark people, not just false teachings. There are no new false teachings. If all we needed to know was false teachings, we could get against heresies. We could get all of the ancient church history books. And we could say, all right, we know all of the heresies. We're good. And never have to worry anymore. But he doesn't say that. Watch out for them. Take notice of them. Mark that person. Warn them once. And then warn them again. Go to them. Here's what you're doing. Biblically, here's why it's wrong. Stop it. Go to them a second time. You're still doing it. Here's why it's wrong. Stop it. After that, have nothing more to do with them. Avoid them. Again, unity in a church, that is biblical unity, not ecumenical unity at the cost of doctrine or true biblical holiness, but true biblical unity is worth dividing over. Now, think about this alongside of what we know in 2 Thessalonians about a man who's walking in idleness, living contrary to the pattern. Paul says for that man, don't eat with him, but warn him like he's a brother. This person, that, that would, we could say that would be a person who's he's not, um, there, there's not unity in practice there. His way of life is not conforming to the biblical pattern. Paul doesn't say to that person immediately, like he does in 1 Corinthians 5, hand them over to Satan. He says, don't eat with them, but warn them like a brother. But 1 Corinthians 5, that person, the next time you're together, hand them over to Satan. This person who causes division, warn them once, warn them twice, be done with them. You're not welcome here. In other words, we see that there are few things that are more contrary to Christianity than division in the body of Christ. Why? Because Christ is not divided. We'll see that at the end, this all is built on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Number five, unity is a reason for thanksgiving and joy. Two texts again, you don't have to turn here. Second Thessalonians 1.3. Paul says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Now notice this double affirmative. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. We ought to because it's right. We need to be giving thanks to God, offering up our thanksgiving. Why? Because you're growing in faith and because you're increasing in your love for one another. Reciprocal love in the body was a point of thanksgiving for Paul. He didn't overlook it. He was obligated to thank God for the mutual love in the body of Christ. Lay that alongside of Philippians 2.2 where Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind 
having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You see how much Paul's soul was tied up in the believers and in their unity. He says, complete my joy. Top it off. Fill it up. Where it's heaping over. My joy. What, Paul, what could we do to, to fill up your joy? Be of the same mind. Together, get together in your thinking. Now how does that happen apart from truth? Apart from an absolute, inerrant, and infallible, and inspired standard of truth. You can't have a same mind apart from that. Get together in your thinking. And then have the same love. Agape, the, the God kind of love that He gives. Get together in your love for one another. Same mind, same love, being, of, being in full accord and of one mind. This is the unity. Both of those words have carried the sense of unity. Unity of character, unity of affection, of mindset, and of thinking. Now when I read this, and you might be the same way when you read this, having the same mind, same love, being in one accord and one mind, you think, well, he's just saying the same thing over and over again. He's just repeating himself, but that's not what's happening. He says, have the same mind and the same love. Get together in your thinking and get together in your love, and what that's going to produce is being in full accord and of one mind. That's the unity. When you are cultivating it, it produces and... and to use the language of the other text, maintains the unity of the Spirit. This is the opposite of his, his struggle in Colossians 2. You see how much he's bound up with these, with these churches. He's struggling, agonizing that they would be knit together. And at the very same time, his joy was completed, tied up in their unity. The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So it's worth thanking God for. It should contribute to our joy. It's a means of grace to see the unity of a local church. Lastly, number six, unity is God's design. And this is, will take us back to 1 Corinthians where we began. 1 Corinthians 12, but God has so composed the body giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there be, may be no division, but that the members have the same care for one another. We see three things here. God has designed both the physical body and the mystical body, the church. We see that God has ordered the parts in both the physical body and the mystical body, the church. And God has ordered those parts in both in such a way, here's the goal, that there may be no division. No division in this text is explained as the members having the same care for one another. This is God's design. This is the way He made it to be. Anything contrary to this is contrary to the design of God. So while we may look at our church and say... Well, I don't see any division. Everybody seems to be doing fine. Nobody's mad at anybody. Nobody's threatening to leave. Everything seems fine. That's not the goal. If you go in a graveyard, every man is on the left, every woman is on the right. They're all four feet apart and six feet down. They're all laying in straight lines. They're all facing east. Nobody's arguing. Nobody's bickering. Nobody's fighting. 
but we would not say that's the kind of unity we want. Right? Unity is not just the absence of division. It's not just the absence of quarreling. It is mutual concern and care for one another out of love for one another. That's biblical unity. That's God's design. So then, by way of application, do you think like the Apostle Paul when it comes to the local church? By way of self-examination, we'll just continue asking questions. Do you have a sense of, the, of urgency with regard to corporate unity? When Paul says, I urge you, I'm begging you, I'm pleading you, do you begin to get kind of antsy on your feet? Recognizing that this is something you ought to be urgent about. If he's so urgent, do you have a sense of urgency? Have you comprehended the obligation that you have to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? What did he say? Be eager. Do you, does that even make sense to you? That I have an obligation to be eager to maintain this, to go after it, to pursue it? Can you sympathize with Paul's struggle for unity? Do you labor for unity in this body? Do you pray for unity in this body? Here's a recommendation. Make a list of all of the families. At family worship, have your family pray for a different family in the church by name every day. Just walk through it. Our kids learn each other's names and faces and how to talk each other's names by praying for one another in the body. Praying for that unity because it's a struggle. It ought to be a struggle within you. Are you jealous over the unity that we have? Jealous. In a conversation with a person inside this church or outside this church, are you willing to shut down the conversation and say, I'm not listening to that? What you're trying to do is drive a wedge of discord between me and a brother or sister in my congregation. I'm not listening to it. Do you have that boldness? Do you have the sensitivity to notice when somebody's trying to do that? Sneakily drive a wedge between you and another member of the church or you and your church by asking questions. Are you willing to say, you're causing unity, I'm not listening to it? Are you jealous over the unity that we have? Again, this is all assuming biblical truth, biblical practice, true unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace, the unity is there, and I'm willing to defend it. Are you willing to warn and mark and avoid someone who is divisive regardless of their relation to you? Does corporate unity give you joy? Is it a cause for thanksgiving to you? When you hear of other people and the struggles that they have in their churches, or maybe they never talk about a struggle because... They never have anything good to even say about their, their church experience. They don't, it's not that there's division. They just, nothing's happening. There's no unity. There's no edification. There's no bond. There's no increase in growth. And does that make you think, praise the Lord for a church that has some sense of unity? Does it give you joy? Or perhaps you would say, well, I couldn't care less if there's unity here. 
It's just like my 9 to 5. I punch the clock and I go home when I'm done and I leave it there. Church, I come to church, I punch my clock, I leave, I leave it all there. I don't care. Or perhaps you wouldn't even notice if there was unity or not. You're just oblivious to everybody else except the person standing inside the 18-inch circle where you're standing. You wouldn't notice unity if, if, if you saw it. If you're not noticing it, you're not going to have joy over it. You're not going to be able to thank God over it. Number seven, do you exalt in the infinite goodness and wisdom of God in His design of the body of Christ? Just like those in Romans 1 worshiping the creature rather than the Creator, here's what we can do. We can, we can come together and have a great time at church and we can see the unity and we can stop there and say, Hey, unity's great. I love unity. Thank you for the unity, man. Boy, we got the unity. Maybe we should change our name again. Unity Baptist Church. Unity Reformed Baptist Church. Do you stop there or do you say, I sense a bit of unity. God Almighty did that. God designed it to work that way. God put it together. Lord, thank you for what unity I have experienced. And Lord, increase it. Help us to be vigilant to pursue this unity. Let's pray that God would give us understanding, that He would make spiritual applications. I could talk all day long, but it, the Spirit's got to write these things in our hearts. And strength to walk in new obedience. Again, I can say it. You can acknowledge it. But if we don't have the strength to walk in it, we've not repented yet. So let's pray that God would give all of these things.